0: On this episode, Dan Rothschild, the executive director here at Mercatus, digs into housing policy with Salim Firth, a senior research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project here at Mercatus. They chat about why Auburn, Maine is the perfect example of an American city getting housing policy right and expand upon what policymakers can do to correct the housing crisis and make their cities flourish. If you would like to connect with a scholar featured on this episode, please email the Mercatus Outreach team at mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu.
1: This is Dan Rothschild, Executive Director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Salim Firth, who is the co-director of our Urbanity Project and a Senior Research Fellow at Mercatus. Salim is an economist who primarily focuses on urban policy, especially housing policy, and his PhD is from the University of Rochester. Salim, thanks for taking time to talk housing today. Dan, thank you. Great to be here. So let me just kind of begin with the very basic issue. I would assume, not knowing much about housing and the way that it works, that this would be something where supply and demand can pretty effectively equilibrate where we've got strong price signals from a market that should allow people to build houses where they need houses. Why are we not seeing that, especially in America's cities today?
0: Right, that's how it should work. It takes time, right? Houses don't come overnight. But over the course of a few years, you should be able to build houses where people want them. But instead, what we've done is put a a straitjacket around most of our cities and suburbs where local zoning rules basically say that what exists there now is the only thing you're allowed to build. So you can replace a small house with a big house, but you can't replace a small house with a four unit house or an apartment building or an office building. And so the result of that carried out over 90, 99 percent of our urban and suburban land is that cities just don't have enough space to grow and create homes for all the people who want to live there. So it's basically a regulatory issue when you get right
1: down to it. We've got a lot of regulations on the way that we build houses, the types of houses that we can
0: build. That's right. This is local government regulation, which is a little strange, right? People think of local government as kind of the fire department and and your neighbors. But ultimately, this is a case of cities and towns doing things very much that we would associate with unresponsive bureaucrats in Washington. And instead, it's kind of unresponsive systems at your own town hall. So why has this
1: become a bigger issue in the last few years? You've seen the flashpoints that have, have come out of housing, especially in some of the places where prices have gone up 10, 15, even 20 percent in the course of a year or two. Nationally, I think we've seen, what, about a 15 percent increase in housing costs over the last year or two. And in some places, it's, it's even more acute than that. So why has this become this big national issue that people are
0: talking about? So it's been brewing up slowly since the 70s, which is really when Zoning kind of became what we know it as today with universal restrictions on, on growth. Before that, it was pretty easy to find places to build. Whether you wanted to build a new subdivision or a new apartment building it's pretty easy to find. And in some American cities, it's still pretty easy to find space to do those things. You know, So in, in Houston, in Atlanta, you can do that if you want to. And the prices there are fairly moderate. They've risen, but they've risen from moderate levels to slightly less moderate levels. What's been going on in the coastal cities, which, you know, they have less land to begin with because of the ocean, but they have just not made space. And decade after decade, those prices have been creeping up. So as early as the late 70s, people were flagging this in the Bay Area, San Francisco, that, hey, prices are are getting pushed beyond the American norm. And then in the 80s, they got pushed a little further. In the 90s, they got pushed a little further. And it's getting to the point now where this is a problem that reaches into the upper middle class in the biggest and most vibrant U.S. cities And with the price increases the last two years, it's starting to reach into the middle class in a lot of cities that had never really had housing shortages or housing crisis before. So I think this is on people's radar because it's affecting far more people than it did, but it's been brewing for a long time.
1: My basic mental model of the problem is that cities are physical manifestations of labor markets in a lot of ways, setting aside the importance of neighborhoods and and things like that, obviously. And what you've seen in a lot of cities, it seems to me, to be a place where the upper middle class and the wealthy can basically afford to take the housing increases. They can afford to pay increasing rents. They can afford higher mortgages. And then you've got people who are in kind of a lower class or in poverty who are held there by placed based welfare programs and social transfer programs. So you've kind of got this bimodal distribution of people in in a lot of cities with the middle class kind of being hollowed out, shunted out into the exurbs or or even farther beyond. Is that basically correct or, or put some
0: color on that? I think there's another bifurcation. You're not wrong, but there's another bifurcation that sort of cuts through all of that, which is who has owned a house for a long time and who's just coming in and trying to buy one, right? So even if you're working class, if you were you know, a unionized garbage collector in New York, and you bought your house in 1980, you might still be working class today, but you've built a tremendous amount of equity as those prices have risen. And so there's this divide. It's often more generational, where you'll get people who are, say, above 60. They've largely owned their homes for a long time. They have a lot of equity. They really would not like to see housing prices fall. And then people who are 25, unless they have generational wealth, they're looking at this housing market and saying, this is crazy, even if they are fairly upper class. So I think it's, a, it's kind of a, an odd cross-cutting bifurcation, which also is part of why the politics of this don't line up with either political party well. So you find pro-housing, pro-reform people in both parties, and then you've got people who are pretty resistant to change in both parties. So I want to, to talk more about that, because as you say, this is something that cross cuts
1: against what you might think typical Republican and Democratic positions would be. How are the political coalitions aligning around the housing issue? I know in California, you've seen kind of a split within the Democratic coalition between people who kind of don't want to build anything, which are, are buffered by the environmentalists who never want to see a single tree cut down. And then on the other side of that, you've got the people who see themselves as being more pro-worker. They're in favor of more affordable or attainable housing. And of course, unions who want to be able to come out and build houses and the infrastructure that go along with that between Republicans and Democrats, how have these cleavages and coalitions kind of come to pass? what are we seeing there
0: yeah it's a really interesting mix I do think that like the first cut you should take is generations that younger people are generally in favor of reform and older people are are generally resistant and then yeah once you break it down so you'll get some unions that are in favor and other unions that are like no we like the current system because it gives us bargaining power so it's a little bit weird but on the Republican side, I think the cleavage is often between those who really think of growth and jobs as being fundamentally important versus those who are maybe more devoted to stability. So the people who are, are just a little bit devoted to stability, they feel comfortable. They're like, things are good as they are. We don't want too much change. They don't want to change zoning that might upset the current equilibrium and lead to something else, which is true. And then you get folks who, who say, no, the current equilibrium is not great. And I want to be able to buy a house as a 25-year-old, or, or I want my 25-year-old kid to be able to buy a house here. And I want our city to be able to grow and create more jobs. And that means attracting more workers. And that means providing housing for them. So you get sort of the more growth-oriented folks on the Republican side being pro-reform. And it's really undefined also on the Republican side. It's not as clear because the interests don't line up as immediately as they do for Democrats. So I want to talk about Maine.
1: Because this was a story that you turned me on to. You spent several years now advising the government in Auburn, Maine, which I'll be honest, is a city I had never heard of until recently, and my family went on vacation 45 minutes away from Auburn last year. But it's the fifth largest city in Maine, and it's possibly the yimbiest city in America. And what we see both in Auburn and then more broadly in Maine is a real push to build more housing that completely scrambles the traditional housing coalitions. So
0: how has that kind of played out in Auburn, and how are we seeing it play out more broadly across Maine? Yeah, I think Auburn is a leader here. So I think what we saw there, and, and we got to have a front row seat to it at Mercado, which was fantastic. But I think we're already starting to see those kind of green shoots, new leaders popping up in both parties across the country. So what really happened there was a guy named Jason Levac, who's a business owner in town. He got elected mayor in 2017. And he's very much a kind of a growth mindset local politician. In, in some ways, I think of him as a throwback to, you know, the 1800s, right? So like, you think of like the little town that got its first train station. And it's just like, we want to grow, we want to be a big city. And so I think he looks at his town and and he looks at the state around him. And I, I got some family from Maine. And it's a lot of really old folks and a lot of retirees from out of state. It's a state where young people who get a good education move away. And then there's sort of like Portland is this kind of little bubble in there where it's extremely expensive and you get you know, kind of the micro brew, you know, fixie bike crowd that wants to have, you know, kind of an authenticity, but it's a very small city and prices are through the roof because that's strictly zoned and there's just not that many homes for all the people who want that much craft beer. So Auburn it is, is kind good of, craft beer. It though. is good craft beer. It's worth it. Auburn is just up the road from Portland about 40 minutes and close enough that they're starting to get some, you know, commuter demand. And they looked at the situation and, and especially Mayor Levesque and said, we could grow. We could be the place where... Mainers get to stay in Maine, where instead of saying, well, either you're going to live in kind of this rundown rural house that your grandfather built or you're going to move to Boston. If we build new housing, people will want to stay here. People actually want to live in this state, but they need some of the amenities that normal American cities have. And I think Auburn offers that just kind of it's an American every town. And with a leader who said our population's been stagnant, our school age population's been shrinking. We have capacity in our schools. We have capacity in our infrastructure. Let's build a couple thousand more housing units, which is a lot for a town that size, and actually grow and see what happens and and reinvest as opposed to trying to capture something from the past, which is, I think, maybe the direction that a lot of other main towns are going where they, they look back at their glory days and they don't see that what made it great was that it was full of people and energy and youth. They think that it's something about the physical structure. and They want to keep that old physical structure and hope the magic happens again.
1: And I think that that goes back to what we were talking about earlier as cities being physical manifestations of labor markets. So if you kind of look at this from a market process approach, you're looking at the process by which a city evolves over a long period of time. And people who are are generally of a self-described liberal or progressive mindset tend to want to stop that kind of growth. There's almost a teleological approach that they take to the growth of the city and the growth of their communities. It's really kind of the opposite of what you would expect from conservatives versus progressives politically. The state of Maine, the Speaker of the House of Representatives there is 29 years old. He's politically progressive. He's someone who you wouldn't associate at all with kind of conservative politics. But he's been Mayor Levesque, who's a a Republican's biggest booster on the state level. He told me recently when we had a conversation that when they were looking at how to increase housing opportunities in Maine, they were bolstered by the fact that they were able to look at Auburn and say, oh,
0: this is already being done. We just need to do more of this. Yeah, that's right. And even within Auburn, Mayor Levesque had progressive allies. And I think, you know, there's these different priorities. I think everybody on both sides of the aisle agrees that having decent housing at an affordable price is a value that they care about. On the left side, there's there's some concerns about climate and environment in that sense. So if we build more housing in existing cities, then we'll sprawl less, cut down less forest. And there's an equity concerns, which actually Mayor Levesque, who's the, you know, descendant of, you know, poor French Canadian immigrants, which is, you know, Maine's biggest immigrant group. He really sort of takes this kind of equity approach to heart and says like, hey, they created this strict zoning to keep people like me from moving out into the kind of nicer countryside. And I want to get rid of it. I want people who are new to Maine, like now it's the Somali immigrants in that area. I want them to have the chance to build a homestead and and create wealth for their families the same way that the Anglos did 100 years ago. And so he's sort of embracing some of those progressive values and showing that they play in a conservative space. And he's gotten allies and really worked and given authority to people who have progressive politics to kind of write changes and and collaborate with him on on actually creating – The laws that they've implemented. Yeah. And then at the state level, they're essentially trying to convince other Maine towns to do what Auburn has done. You know, I think that's a tremendous credit to folks on both sides here that they're able to look past the culture war stuff that definitely divides them and say, like, we do want Maine to grow. So then
1: going from the state level to the national level, on May 16th, the Biden administration put out a big announcement about a series of new housing initiatives, uh, most of which they're going to try to do through executive action, but some of which I believe have a legislative component as well. What's your take on the Biden administration's
0: housing approach? What are the upsides? What are the downsides? And what can we learn from it? So there's some good stuff in there. You know, I think that they have really taken to heart some stuff that I and a few others have written about their previous proposals, which were really focused on planning and subsidizing housing for people who don't have a lot of money. That's fine, but it doesn't get you there because when the fundamental problem is there aren't enough houses, going through planning exercises isn't going to make more houses. Giving more people more money to buy housing is just going to boost demand, which rises prices even further for those who don't get a subsidy. So I I think they've really reframed towards a supply-side explanation of the problem, which is really important. And I think they also understand what the levers that the federal government has so they're talking a lot about financing which the federal government already does a lot of whether you like that or not that's where the federal government is in play. They're not trying to expand the scope of federal action but trying to think about how to reframe the things that federal government's already doing. So that's all good. I think there's a lot in there actually that needs statutory change and a lot that even if it could be done by regulatory or executive action there are stakeholders who would be pretty resistant. So we'll see how far they can get with implementing it. But I was encouraged to see that they're thinking about the problem correctly. And that at least gives you a a foundation for correct action in the future. So what's your bottom
1: line advice to policymakers? What needs to be done about the housing crunch? What are the
0: levers that local and state policymakers especially have in their toolboxes? How do they fix it? Right, so let's go back to Auburn. So what are the things they did? They allowed any homeowner to build a second unit On their site, which in Maine, there's lots of kind of large lots, people have three, five acres, and they're finding that a handful of families are building a second home so that somebody of a different generation can move onto that parcel, but have some privacy. Another thing they did is remove parking minimums for all commercial uses, right? Business owners, they know their business. They're not going to build a site with no parking and then have their business die because customers couldn't get there. Or they might say, hey, I'm actually next to a big vacant parking lot. I don't need to build more parking. And so it keeps prices down. And then another thing they did the most recent was to upzone, that's increase the allowed density in most of their core neighborhoods. And these are neighborhoods where when the people who were on the committee that did this, when they talked about what did they value about their neighborhoods, it was that it was walkable, that they had a few different, you know, corner stores and businesses that really defined where they lived, like, oh, you're in the pizza market neighborhood. And so they wanted to allow those businesses, which Auburn's zoning now for decades has just locked those down. And so there's a few businesses that are essentially grandfathered in and you can't build any new ones. They said, let's allow new you know, corner stores. Let's allow density up to 16 units per acre, which is denser than a single family neighborhood, but that could be townhouses. It could be small multifamily. And so they're allowing change and allowing buildings to be built in a way that really comports with what they want their city to be and that just allows wiggle room. So I think that's what other American cities need to adapt to their own context. It's going to be a little bit different everywhere. But those are the kinds of changes that I'd like to see every city in town taking up and considering and adapting in their own contexts. Yeah, my takeaway is
1: that there are a lot of relatively small things that can be done that can have a tremendous impact on people's quality of life and can make cities more opportunity-focused and move away from some of the ways that previous land use has cemented what they have into place. That's absolutely right. Celine Firth, thanks very much for your work on this important issue, and thanks for chatting with me about it today. Thank you, Dan.
0: The Mercatus Policy Download is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Explore our research on pressing policy problems at mercatus.org. And for even more, follow us on Twitter at Mercatus.